All right. Okay, we're live. We're going. We're going. Live from New York. It's Saturday night. <laughs> okay. <laughs> None of those things are true. It's Tuesday. <laughs> It's not Tuesday. <laughs> it's Wednesday, actually. It's Wednesday. It is Time Wednesday, is my dudes. Ah. <laughs> Time is an illusion. Time is a flat circle. <laughs> Lunchtime doubly so. So, Welcome right. to Spin, the special interest podcast. Yeah, where we get drunk and talk about our special interests, except not Amaya's because Amaya's can't drink now. <laughs> because I'm baby now. <laughs> I've been babied. Also, I can't remember if I had come out the last time time so um hi my name's mir now i'm non-binary that's spelled m-i-r like the russian space probe pronouns uh they them yeah all right i'm charlie as ever and my pronouns are still he him and i'm amayas he him we're here to talk about sci-fi today, probably. You wanted me to talk about my problems with uprising and writing and, and hashtag true. themes. You explained the plot of Pacific Rim Uprising. Oh, right, because neither of you have seen it, have no. you? No. <laughs> okay, so... I know that Newt is the bad guy, that's all. Yeah, you both have seen regular Pacific Rim. Yes. And yes. you, I know, are super familiar with that, Charlie. How familiar are you with Pacific Rim Amaya's? You've seen it, like, once. I've seen Pacific Rim two or three times now. Okay. Yeah. I was actually, like, in the Pacific Rim fandom for a little bit. Not as much as you were, but, like, Newman's good. <laughs> yeah. The rough plot of Uprising is following an outline for Newt Geisler's character arc that Del Toro, or whoever originally conceived these characters, had always envisioned for him, where whereby the drift Newt did with the, um, the kaiju, kaiju brain. brain in the first movie permanently set him down a road where he... Um, he gets possessed by the gets, kaiju He basically mind. gets possessed by the hive mind. Yeah. And okay. that part I was aware of just from like people I know talking about the movie when honestly, it first came out. Honestly... I can, okay, I can remember when I got into the Pacific Rim fandom in 2014, mm -hmm. um, like, it was known that this was, like, Del Toro or whoever's eventual vision for Newt, and this was a very contentious thing. A lot of people were like, that's a bad plot for him because he's coded as neurodivergent, and that's a shitty way to deal with a character like that. Fair. Me... Personally, I have always thought that that, because he's coded as neurodivergent, could be handled extremely compellingly and could be extremely interesting. Yeah. It was not done well. Oh, that's it was tragic. Not done, it was not done sensitively. It was not done with the nuance that requires for Newt being neurodivergent and also sympathetic. Like, he wasn't ever painted as evil. At least I always thought Uprising did a conscious job of framing him as, like, a victim of his own bad choices. It still was not given the screen time or the weight that such a story choice deserves, especially because Newt and Herman are the only two characters from the first movie who are still in the second movie. Mako, Mako is there for half an hour and then they kill her. Oh, that's fucking rude. Rude. Yeah. How dare they, honestly. Yeah. Mako should be, like, leading the force as far as I'm okay. concerned. Okay, I have only seen Uprising one time because it was a fucking train wreck and Valid. I'm way more interested in going to the scrapyard and picking out the bits of metal from that train wreck to make something new with yes, than I am mood. with revisiting the movie. If I get some facts wrong, I probably will. But I think Mako... Ten, okay, Uprising is set 10 years later. Mm -hmm. I think Mako is in charge of the Pan Pacific Defense Corps. I think mm -hmm. she's like head of that organization now. Mm -hmm. And then they fucking kill her. Yeah. Honestly, how dare they? Okay. That's upsetting. The most annoying thing about that to me is the way that she died was just so stupid and petty. It feels like it was only there to like create man pain angst for Jake Pentecost. But that line of emotion in him only lasted lasted like 10 minutes on screen and then was never really... All of the character work in this was so sloppy and half-assed. There were already a lot of reasons I knew Del Toro wasn't involved with this movie. Like, yeah. I, I knew factually also, but 
That just everything's proves it. just making it more obvious yeah. that Del Toro was not involved in this movie. Okay, no, I I'm, don't think he would have killed Mako. I'm gonna repeat a thing that I already either said on Twitter or said to Idris, I can't remember. The strongest character in this entire movie was Burn Gorman's ability to look sad. Like Burn Gorman's tragic face. When oh I my close God. my eyes and try to remember visually Pacific Rim Uprising, that's what I see in my mind. Is Burn Gorman looking sad uh-huh. so like hats off to him my main man i love him carrying <laughs> the whole weight of the movie yep. on his shoulders yep, exactly. no wonder he has a bad back <laughs> what's like what's the conflict here all i ever, okay all i ever see people talk about is newton herman in specifically pru because Didn't... people talk about other things in the first pacific rim honestly it's because newton herman's relationship in pru is the strongest point of the movie Everything at like, which is sad because they don't really get a lot of screen time. <laughs> like, I think Oof. probably they get like 15 or 20 minutes of screen time. Tops. Tops. And they're still the strongest point of the whole movie. That's a big so, yikes. Like, okay, here I'm going to tell you the plot in chronological order as it happens in the movie, even though that is not the best way to explain it. It would make more sense and be easier to understand if I explained it thematically. But I want you to experience secondhand what watching this movie is like. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, we open... And again, we're drinking alcohol. Also, I've only seen this once, so I'm gonna get some things wrong. It doesn't sound but like you wanted to watch it a second no, time. No. I don't. This is a disclaimer for the audience, not oh. for you two. So, we open on, like, a scrapyard, emblematic of what this whole rest of this movie is in my mind. But we open on a scrapyard, and there's this 15-year-old girl collecting parts, and then Jake Pentecost, played by John Boyega, running through the scrapyard, and two other guys are chasing chasing him. He, he says to them that they're gonna do a deal, but then they're gonna stab him in the back, but then he stabs them in the back to steal a part of a Jaeger, because they're in a Jaeger scrapyard. It's revealed that this is Jake Pentecost, Stacker Pentecost's son that we never heard of until this moment. Yeah, fucked yeah. up if true. <laughs> fucked up if true. <laughs> he's, like, talking about how he's gonna, like, use the money from this, uh, scrap haul. I think actually this might be like voiceover narration at this point of him and as he's running away. And he's like, well, it's 10 years on from the closing of the breach and the end of the Kaiju War and the world's still a mess. And if you want to get on top in this world, you gotta make risky decisions and do some bad shit. I don't know, it just hits me extremely wrong because he's black. You're leaning into some bad stereotypes here. Anyway. Also, you would think what with the whole theme of the first movie being like optimism and banding together to fix things that after they like fixed the breach things would improve like at least a little okay here's the thing to me pacific rim uprising did two very compelling things as badly as you could possibly do them and Uh still hold my attention and those two things are newton herman's relationship and the idea that the war ending did not solve most of the problems okay that's fair people are still struggling climate change problems are still happening there's still like widespread social and economic inequality as a result of the military tech stuff that was going on Mm-hmm. And it's revealed that John Boyega had been in the Jaeger program, and he and his dad had never really gotten along, and he was estranged from his father. His dad, I guess, treated him real shitty, and he tried to take a Jaeger out on a solo run and hurt himself. So Pentecost kicked him out of the Jaeger program in 2024, which is the year before the closing of the breach. So now it's 2035 and he's like, fuck the PPDC and trying to play by the rules and fuck all that shit and blah, 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 blah. He's a bitter 30 year old. He is. He's bitter and and mad. Yeah. This doesn't sound like I would like this character very much. I'm upset. I don't like this character. Unfortunately. I think that this character is the weakest point of this whole movie. And is he the main character? (laughs) He is the main character. Oh no. (laughs) Um, You did bad Pacific Rim too. Yeah. Pacific Rim Uprising, you fucked up. Okay, so he and the little 15-year-old girl, she's building a Jaeger from scratch for Mm. herself, but it's like a smaller Jaeger Mm. 
than a usual Jaeger so that it can be piloted by one person. That's what she's trying to do. And then he's like running from these guys that he double crossed. So he jumps inside with her and they're like trying to run away. And one of the actual PPDC Jaegers chases them down and catches them in this Jaeger that's like toddler size compared to it. So they take the two of them back to the PPDC headquarters. This is another thing that I find infuriating about this movie is that the world building in the first movie is so specific and detailed about like this attack happened in Vladivostok in 2021 and blah 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 blah. Where the fuck are they? Like, it's never specified where they are. I guess that's not actually that big of a deal, but it feels so jarring to me after the first movie, which is like... It has very trying, good world building. Yeah, it's trying to place itself firmly in the world and make you believe this is like an alternate future of our world. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like, the second one isn't trying to do that as hard, and it's really weird to me. That's a director's choice that I, I've seen people comment on before. Yeah? It's not, it's not as anchored of a movie. In, yeah. In the first Pacific Rim movie, all of the camera shots are places that you could actually put a camera, even though they're entirely CG scenes most yeah. of the time. Like, you, you've got a camera that looks like and is moving like it's flying by on a helicopter or it's floating on a buoy. Um, oh, there's one, my my personal favorite cool camera shot in Pacific Rim 1 is it's like the big fight in the middle of the movie and it's from inside of an office building and mm -hmm. you see yeah, them crashing by outside. Mm -hmm. It's very good. <laughs> and then there's that one bit where like the edge of the thing touches the desk and oh, yeah, the fist perpetual like motion breaks machine. through the yep. wall. And it it's just just good. nudges the desk and the perpetual motion machine that's, goes off. That's yeah. Really that's cool. like so unnecessary and I love it. It's very funny though. I feel like I don't need to point out that Del Toro's a great director, but Del Toro's <laughs> a great director. Yes, but this is true. I, I did see someone comment that the second movie, none of those shots are like that. They're all just sort of free floating in space, circling around the characters. It it's parallels mm -hmm. that de-anchoring in space. Yeah. Okay, so the little girl who I think her name is Amara, which like is a word that is reminiscent of some languages word for love, and I can't remember. But I like that uh, that's her literally name. Literally every Latin-based language ever. You're right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Amora is love. Yeah. Okay, but anyway, I love Amara. <laughs> She's a good mm -hmm. kid. She deserved to be there. Make her the main character. I mean, okay, John Boyega... What's his name? Jake and Amara get dragged into the PBDC uh, base and then Mako is talking to him about the choices that he's made and that's where they do the exposition dump. Jake is Pentecost's son and this is why he was estranged from his father and this is why he is the shithead that he is. Okay. And then he used to be co-pilots with this guy, Nate Lambert, who is still working at the PBDC Jaeger Academy training younger pilots. Why? My question is, why are they still training people to pilot Jaegers if they're not worried about kaijus okay, anymore. Okay, this is point number two about this movie that fucks me up. So the breach is closed, but they're not doing anything to rebuild the world, and the PPDC... The thing is, I felt like the entire time I was waiting for this to be lampshaded or commented on in some way that even though the war has been over for 10 years, they're still running things as though they're prepping for another one, even though they have no evidence at all to say that that is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, there's something there about war in general and, like, military culture, the way the military and tech interact, because, like, so many technological advances have come to us either through NASA or through people who work at NASA but funded by and for the military. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the second movie set up a premise to comment on the Jaegers as that kind of technology following in that kind of vein. And then they didn't take that. They didn't go anywhere with it. And I can't tell if it was just completely tone deaf and they didn't realize what they were doing or if they did realize what they were doing but they were setting it up for a payoff that would presumably happen in the third movie. Are assuming they was going movie? to be a third movie. <laughs> I don't think they're making a third movie. The I second one didn't. No, I, it didn't. But it feels like the weird middle stage in a trilogy. Yeah, there's a lot of those. Huh. So like... I, I get what you're saying, I think. It's like the second Matrix movie. In the first movie, like Charlie said, the theme was about optimism and working to overcome your oppressors. You mm -hmm. will be able to win out and help people. Mm -hmm. The natural conclusion of that would be using the Jaegers again to rebuild the world. It would make the most sense after they are sure that there's not another threat coming, mm -hmm. they would start with rebuilding efforts. They don't show any kind of rebuilding efforts. All they show is like 
Okay, so one of my favorite scenes in all of Pacific Rim is the opening that Raleigh does that establishes all the world building and this background information. <laughs> I don't know, I just really, I love that whole sequence. Like the opening scene with like how the Jaegers were made the Jaegers were and built, the history. And like how the Jaeger program turned into propaganda. Right, mm-hmm. and, okay. And mm-hmm. like how they sold it to the public and then like how the public reacted to that versus the wall. Mm-hmm. Like all of the shots that they have, like that one bit where Raleigh's in his quarters watching an interview on the news about there's the wall and then there's the safe zones inland and they're talking about how the safe zones are only a, an option for people who can afford to get up and move mm-hmm. to move further in. Yeah, there were a lot of really solid statements. Yeah, there. exactly. That is completely entirely missing from the sequel. Mm. There's nothing, no equivalent to that in the movie. And I kept waiting for it to come in the form of the technology developed in times of war will in times of peace be used by the larger population for things other than its original intention. I kept waiting for that to be presented in some way and it never was. And it was just so deeply frustrating to me. So the plot of the rest of the movie is that Jake Manpain Pentecost and um, uh-huh. Nate Lambert, who used to be his co-pilot. co-pilot. Yeah, who used to be his co-pilot before he got kicked out of the Jaeger Academy by his dad that he now has a grudge against. His dad who's dead, but his, he still has dead, a grudge against. His dead dad, who he hasn't forgiven, despite the fact that he and Mako apparently are on, like, friendly enough terms that she feels comfortable being like, hey, so you're stuck here until you can get your act together by so anyway he and Lambert have an argument during which I feel like there was a lot of erotic tension in that argument like I don't I don't care (laughs) I don't care about Jake Pentecost because he's a dick and also he should not be the focus of this movie and also he as a character on a meta level is leaning on a whole bunch of racist stereotypes that Mm -hmm. I don't like and I don't like Nate Lambert because he has no personality besides that he's Jake rival and he's extremely blonde hair blue eyes chiseled jaw mm. American military pretty boy so like the fact that you can't tell Raleigh and the Australian dude apart in the first movie he's like the same brand yeah, yeah he's cut from the exact same mold all right yeah. good to know yeah the only reason I can tell them apart is because I recognize Charlie Hunnam from Queer as Folk that's so valid. I recognize Charlie Hunnam from the movie with the ghosts that I like. Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak. Yes. Yes. It's He's, the best movie yeah. in the universe. The okay, he is the doctor, yeah. Okay. I we think... can talk about Crimson Peak when we get to the... Okay. Listen, I fucking love Crimson Peak so much. Me it's too. the best movie Me too. ever. It's, yeah, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. And we will definitely talk about it. Yes. Sidebar about Raleigh. Yes. He's not in this movie at all. Is he mentioned? Not even once. There's not a line dropped saying... Oh, he died, or oh, he retired into the private sector, or whatever. He's not mentioned at all. He just vanished. He huh? just vanishes. Rude. How dare that? And I'm extremely salty about this. That's like upsetting, especially in the context of like Mako having a major role and then dying. You'd think that the two of them would have stayed friends. Okay, yeah. And yeah. the things they did to drift compatibility as a concept in this movie are near criminal. Oh, how dare. What did they do? Okay, drift compatibility in the first movie is made out to be some like Raleigh, literally the monologue is my brother Yancey and I we were never at the, we were never the star athletes never at the top of the class but we could hold our own in a fight and we had a unique skill we were drift compatible and then it goes into the main theme music as they drop down the elevator to get into yeah. the Jaeger and that's like literally one of my favorite moments in the whole movie is that moment we were drift compatible <laughs> it's yeah. a really important it's, unique power it's very and then cool in Pacific Rim Uprising Jake and Amara, who have literally never met before, don't know anything about each other except that they're both running from these guys that are chasing Jake. He strong arms his way into her creation that she just built and just got online, and then they drift? And it's like, mm. that that's shouldn't kind work. Of in the first movie, didn't didn't Raleigh and Mako have to, like, train together for a long-ass time before they were even allowed to try to drift No, Ra- okay, so the purpose of that scene was to find a suitable candidate to drift with Raleigh based on Responded being able fight. to predict yeah. each other's movements and behaviors. Mm. And the fight that Mako and Raleigh have in that scene... It's gauging their chemistry. It, yeah, it is gauging their chemistry, but it's gauging their 
ability to predict the other's decisions. Yes. Mm-hmm. So like it's about to- like getting into a groove with someone and understanding them on a non-vocal level. To mm-hmm. some extent, I'm willing to make the concession that you could drift with someone who was basically a stranger under the right circumstances, but I feel like trivializing that connection and that ability was a bad move. Yes. It's just like... I think drift compatibility is a really neat concept. It requires you to, like, be on the same level and understand the person in order to, like, drift well with that person. Yeah. Not only the fact that it's, like, a difficult thing to do, a skill you have to cultivate, but also it's, like, a relationship you have, you have to have yeah, with you have that to relation. You have to be able to cultivate a relationship or barring that, there's that bit where because Herc Hansen is injured and he and Pentecost aren't going to be able to take the Jaeger into the breach, mm-hmm. Chuck goes with him instead and Chuck even says to Pentecost, well, how are you and I supposed to like match up in there? And Pentecost says, well, I'm really disciplined and I'll just bring nothing into the drift. I can deal with your dumbass emotions. I know what you're like. You're an insecure jerk who has daddy issues. Okay. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and- so you have to either be compatible or be really good at this. Yeah. Yeah. But then I have some questions about Jake here. You said he forced his way into her one-person machine that she built. Basically, yeah. In order to drift with somebody, you have to want to, though. Like, that's what the first movie kind of set up was... (sighs) Yeah, You have to let them in. Yeah, the first movie... I'm sure there are ways to make this make sense, but... To me, the way they handle drift compatibility in the second movie displays a lack of understanding of what made it compelling in the first movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of lack of understanding of what made the first movie compelling. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that seems yeah. to be a trend here. Yeah, it really <laughs> is. I think maybe they brought on a director who's never seen a Del Toro movie before and maybe has never seen Pacific Rim. <laughs> it certainly felt like that at times. Oh dear. Okay, so continuing to move forward with my as brief as I can make it plot analysis. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, so Nate and Jake are gonna try and like train this new squadron of cadets. Again, I feel like there should have been some commentary in this movie about why do they even need a new squadron of cadets, especially because when you do finally see Newt and Herman, Newt is no longer working for the PBDC. He's working in the private sector for a company called Shao Industries. Mm-hmm. They are building drones to pilot Yale so that human beings do not have to pilot Jaegers. This was not very clear what exactly this company like intends to do with this technology, but I think that the implication was that the rebuilding the world kind of stuff was very dangerous and needed to be done by machines and not humans. It's been 10 years. Why aren't they already <laughs> using the Jaegers for that? Go on. <laughs> That's what Newt's doing. Newt is building drones. Herman is still working for the PBDC, He's doing research on kaiju blood. Shouldn't I feel like they? Yeah, exactly. These should be the opposite things. And I because yeah. they drifted, I feel like that's almost clever. Also, Newt now dresses in like three-piece suits and he's got contacts now and his hair looks bad. Newt <laughs> Newt doesn't look good in this movie. Yeah. Newt's look is so I've seen fucking it. boring. I've and Herman's dressed all in black. And I'm just like <sighs> Like, I I want this to have been intentional. They rubbed off on each other. They rubbed off. They did. But they haven't seen each other for 10 years. Oh, no. It could have been clever. It could have, like. But they didn't carry it through. Yeah. Everything about this is a tragedy and a train wreck. So they haven't seen each other in 10 years. So I'm personally offended on behalf of Guillermo del Toro. (laughs) Okay, later, later I'm going to show you pictures of Bern Garvin in this movie. Oh, I've seen. He looks so cute. He is. God he, fucking damn it. Bern Gorman is a frog prince. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I've seen him in this movie and yes, he is cute. Yes. He is he a looks frog so prince cute. and you would give him a little smooch? A little Perhaps. smooch. Yep. <laughs> yep. Just the smallest two smooches. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, okay, they're going to train these new cadets and then Newt and Herman see each other briefly for what's implied to be the first time in 10 years and they have this really long drawn out conversation during which Herman keeps trying to tell Newt 
Newt about the things in his research that he's excited for and that he wants his opinion on, and Newt continually shuts him down. And it's like complete flip-flopped from the way they interacted in the first movie, which again, could have been clever for like drift reasons, but they didn't mm-hmm. lean into it. Mm-hmm. And then there, there's some kind of summit meeting to unveil the launching of the Shao Industry drones, I think is what's going on. And Mako's flying there in a helicopter because she's the head of the PBDC. And Jake and uh, Nate are in another Jaeger there just to be like, hi, at all the people who've gathered to be like, yeah, propaganda, basically, is why they're there. And then uh-huh. the drone-piloted Jaegers go rogue, and Mako's helicopter starts to crash, and there's this scene where... Uh, Nate and Jake do like a running jump with their arm outstretched to catch the helicopter and it slips through their fingers and that's how Mako dies. And I, and this especially stresses me out that this is the way that she dies because I feel like how fucking cool, if this scene were happening in the first movie, the Jaeger would have caught the helicopter and it would have been the best fucking scene ever. That Jaeger just caught a fucking helicopter and saved Mako's life. It would have looked so cool. They killed Mako fucking Mori in a PR stun? Yes! They did! They did! Yeah, this is bad. (laughs) I wonder if anyone asked Guillermo del Toro what he thought of this movie. I saw a tweet that someone in the Pacific Rim Twitter fandom quote retweeted to be like, I think about this all the time. And it was a list of scripts that del Toro had that he either hadn't gotten around to passing around to get them made into movies or that he, for whatever reason, could not pass around to get made into movies. And one of them was Pacific Rim 2. And then in parentheses, very different <laughs> and I'm just like Oof. Del Toro they did him so dirty <laughs> yes yeah, just I'm... like retcon this. Yeah, get really. rid of it. Make just... the second movie about Amara and Mako. Pacific like, Room Two, recovering from Raleigh's Pacific death. Pacific Room Two. I don't know. Two Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> Pacific Room Two Two. The redo over or something like that. But... I'm just so personally offended by everything about this. So after Mako's helicopter crashes, when Newt and Herman see each other briefly for five of the fifteen minutes of screen time they have. <laughs> um, Herman basically said Herman says to him something along the lines of I've been trying to get in touch with you for like 10 years and you always blow me off and Newt's basically like well I've invited you to come home and meet the wife and you always blow us off <laughs> and his wife's his wife's name is Alice auditory media yeah. was doing air quotes, <laughs> air quotes around the wife extremely heavy air quotes on wife Alice <laughs> Alice. Definitely a real person. (laughs) Newton Geisler is definitely a straight man. Newt Geisler is bi. Excuse you, he could hypothetically have a wife named Alice because he's bi. Yes, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. I I don't do... I'm bi, but I don't feel like bi people would normally refer to their spouses as, quote, the wife. I don't know. I can't remember if that's what he actually said. I was paraphrasing for... I was paraphrasing Sorry. for cringe effects. Okay. It worked. <laughs> I cringed. <laughs> Good. So after the whole drones helicopter thing goes down, then we cut to Newt in his apartment where he's talking to his wife, air quotes, as he's coming uh-huh. in and pouring himself a drink and taking off the horrible vest that he now wears. The camera follows him into the bedroom where he has the brain in a vat and he puts on a pawns thing oh. and he drinks with uh-huh. the kaiju brain and then okay. you realize that he's being either possessed or mind controlled or just influenced into becoming a horrible person because personally I don't think he was possessed or mind controlled I just I feel like there could have been a very interesting point to have been made here about mental illness and neurodivergence and isolation but mm-hmm. they did not have like the presence of mind to follow through on any of the concepts that they set up here least of all this one mm-hmm. Newt's being possessed or something. After that, 
I can't remember what happens plot-wise. Probably there's some more angst between Nate and Lambert. The little girl, Amara, gets recruited into the cadet squadron, but then she gets kicked out, and I can't remember why. It's not important. The only important thing about this squadron of cadets is that they are all super gung-ho, fully ready, fully, like, buying into the propaganda about it, and, like... You're not in war. Did you ever see or read Ender's Game, either of you? No. I read I'm aware of what it's about. And I was not able to continue. The Sparknotes summary of Ender's Game is that it's the future, but not far enough in the future that we have FTL travel. Don't they, like, train a bunch of kids to, like, do a some kind of fucking chess game real good, but it's not actually chess? It's, like, theorizing about, like, real spaceships and shit that are yeah. in a war? Yeah, yeah. It's so... Yeah, like, genocide plans? Yes. So these kids think that they're taking tests and practicing war games before they go off and fight in the real war, but it turns out that using video games and long-distance communication, they've been fighting the actual real war this whole time. And this little boy, Andrew Wigan, who's nicknamed Ender, accidentally did a genocide. And that's the plot of the first book, Ender's Game. But then the second, at the end of that one, he has, like, some telepathic connection with the queen hive mind of this species. He, the species that he genocided. That he genocided. And okay. he, um... Jesus. He's communicating with her from across the galaxy, so he goes to find her to, like, take the eggs that she still has to a safe planet where it will be safe for them to start again as a people. They didn't know anything about this species that they were fighting against except that they were encroaching on their space. So they didn't like consider them as people at any point during this and Ender was too young and being tricked into doing a thing that he would never have done willingly. So like he spends the rest of the series trying to like make this right and give this other species this the theory of mind that the people running the war never gave them. And it's just the rest the second book, Speaker for the Dead, is one of my favorite science fiction books. That's Orson's a very good got title. Yeah, okay. Orson's got card who wrote this book. Super problematic dude. Oh yeah, he's a dick. <laughs> Fucked up if true, but I love this book, okay? <laughs> Death of the author, baby. Death, Death of the author, of the baby. Fucking author. Yeah, he's the Yikes. fucking worst, but like my city now, baby. <laughs> so Yeah. <laughs> I kept waiting for That's what you do with Harry Potter too, huh? Oh yeah, Harry Potter and Orson Scott Hart, both. My city now. Yeah. So I kept waiting for this young this squadron of cadets to go all Ender's Game shit, where they realized that, like, the adults didn't actually know what was going on. But then, what ended up happening was that, so Newt's plan all along had been to infiltrate this company and use a mix of genetic engineering that he had done and technology to... He basically, he put some blood inside the drones that let him take control of the drones. Mm-hmm. He put some blood into the drones. Uh-huh. He wrote uh-huh. the code for the drones. He put in a back door in the code that let him take control of the drones. Because hive mind. Yes, yeah. yes. And then... Kaiju blood. Yeah. And okay. Herman was doing research on kaiju blood. Blood from Alice. No, it, it wasn't actually from Alice. I don't know where he got the blood. <laughs> Probably okay. fucking Hannibal Chow. No, okay, okay. Is that think... ever followed up on? No, Hannibal Chow's never mentioned again. Bitch. All right, then. So, <laughs> this the... movie isn't worth my time. <laughs> no, the really four isn't. characters that continue from the previous movie that I know of. Yeah. Stacker Pentecost, who's dead. Yes. Is mentioned. Yes. Mako Mori, who dies. Yes. Newton Herman. Newton Herman. Yes. That's it. Number five, the kaiju brain. The kaiju brain was more important than keeping Mako Mori alive. Than yep. not killing Mako Mori in a few Tendo, so I'm so Tendo angry. Tendo Choi was never mentioned either. And I know this How's is not they? as important, but I love Tendo Choi. He's, so, he like, a bow tie. He's yeah. a beautiful little man. And also, I love him. he was one of my first ever trans head cannons. Okay, that's and fucking Newt valid. Newt Geisler and Tendo Choi, both trans. Bottle Rocket Principle yes. was <laughs> one of the only three Pacific Rim fix I read because Charlie linked it to me. It's yeah. a good, really good. fucking fan fiction and yeah. I love it a lot yep. and I saved it as a pdf to my desktop like immediately after reading it and I like printed it out and read it to myself when I was preparing to come out it's a good fic I That's sent my you onion. that so I'm like I'm glad. It's a good fic. I have an entire playlist that I, I made to, like, pump myself up to, like, not stress out too much about trying to come out of the fucking closet. And it was... The playlist was named Countdown to Liftoff, which was from the, the, that fic. 
So, yes, it's a good fan fiction. <laughs> That's my contribution to this episode. Anyway, okay, so... <laughs> should have been the main character of this Tendo movie. Tendo <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Trans Tendo Choi should have been the main character. This whole movie should have been about Tendo coming out. But where was I? Okay, now, now we've got past all of the this is terrible for character reasons. Now we're going to get into a brief section of this is terrible for plot reasons. Okay. Here was Newt's plan. Uh-huh. <laughs> Newt infiltrated Xiao Industries so that he could put a code, a backdoor code, into these drones so that when activated, it would cause the kaiju blood that he had put in there. It wasn't real kaiju blood because that's from another dimension and they are a silicon-based life form. And so he did, like, an approximation of kaiju blood with rare earth elements, which is what... Herman's research was on, and so the whole thing where it seemed like their dynamic had flipped was actually not residual drift effects. It was because Newt didn't want Herman to get too close to this research that he was already caught up on and that he had also been doing so that he could use it to destroy the world. Because Newt's plan was to use the drones to go to where the breach was and fire lasers into the sea, into the the, the, the fucking the seabed until and it opened the, the breach again. again. And then once the rift opened again, more kaiju were gonna come through. But instead of killing any people, People, they were gonna go and jump into a volcano and the reason for this is because as Herman learned from his research on kaiju blood there are rare earth elements in kaiju blood that when combined with the molten core of the earth will trigger a series of catastrophic earthquakes and tsunamis and volcano eruptions that will effectively coat the planet in like cloud cover that will kill everyone from oxygen and sunlight deprivation this was Newt's plan. First I'll turn him into a flea. Then I'll put that flea in a box. Then I'll put that flea in another box. Then, then I'll, I'll mail, mail it to myself. myself and and I'll then smash I'll smash it with a hammer. Yeah. This is so many steps he could have just shot the Yellowstone caldera and called it a day. I know, right? Oh like so This is too much. I can't cover. So at this point, the drones are going crazy. They're trying to drill a hole in the ocean floor. Herman runs up to Newt and is like, the woman that you are working for tricked and manipulated you and blah, 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 blah. Clearly, because it would never in a million years occur to Herman that Newt was doing this on purpose because mm -hmm. Newt's a good person and Herman knows that. And I'm... <laughs> So, Valid to be emo about that. So he's like, oh my god, is there a way to fix this? And Newt's like, oh yeah, obviously. So they run into the main control room and Newt activates the command that like will let him take control of the drone so he can enact his evil plan. And then he turns to Herman and Herman's like, wait, but what? I don't understand. And Newt, Newt's like, <laughs> I don't think he actually does an evil laugh. I can't remember though. He should. <laughs> and there's this extremely weird flashback thing, which is flashback to the moment that Newt drifts with the kaiju brain for the first time in the first movie, but it's framed as though it is a drift memory, which makes me think it's Herman remembering that moment as he saw it in the drift, which is like too many layers for me. I'm just like... Anyway, so Herman stands there and looks devastated, and then he's trying to, like, talk Newt out of it. He's like, Newton, you are a good man. And, Newt, and Newt's like, as usual, you figured it out one step behind. And literally, these are the words that he says, one step behind, as usual. And then he tries to strangle Herman to death. <laughs> it doesn't work, though, does it? It doesn't work, okay. because the head of Shao Industries comes in and tries to shoot Newt. And Herman's like, no, yeah. no, no, you can't shoot him. And then Newt runs away, so he doesn't get shot. But then he, like, stands on top of a mountain and, like, cackles as... This time he actually is doing an evil laugh. As, oh, my like, God. I admire Charlie Day for his dedication to this role. Because I would not have been able to, like, keep a straight face as, through this shit. As he... So he's standing, like, laughing to himself as he watches the kaiju climb up the mountain to jump into the volcano. But then, obviously, the Ender's Game children and Jake and Nate, like, save the world and kill the kaiju, and then Newt gets 
fucking knocked out and they tie him up in a chair in the basement and the precursors have like full control of his mind and I was really hoping that the last scene in the movie would be Herman trying to like talk some sense into him but it's not it's Jake Pentecost saying to the precursors through him that like okay you didn't win and not only that we're coming to get you this time and it's like and that's the last scene that's the last scene in the whole movie so like I feel like based on that the writer of this movie anticipated that the third movie would be about the Jaegers going through the breach and I'm like okay with that as an additional layer of framing can we please talk about the Ender's Game the children don't know what they're actually doing this war is not necessary you're doing a genocide level of this can we Please talk about that. <laughs> like, I'm just uh-huh. like... <sighs> it is... There's several things I would <laughs> like to talk to the director of this movie about. Yeah. <laughs> the first thing I would like to talk to the writers and directors of this movie about is that it's always risky to assume your movie's gonna have a sequel. Mm-hmm. If you're not making movies based on a book trilogy, you should not expect a movie trilogy. Yeah. What the hell? Okay. This movie felt so much like the middle of a trilogy. It suffered so much because of it. That's really unfortunate. <sighs> they didn't... The first movie's message was that optimism and hope can win out even against mm-hmm. world-destroying forces. Mm-hmm. The second movie's message is nobody wins because the military will always do what the military was designed to do. <laughs> Except it doesn't carry through that message into a meaningful critique of the military. It just sort of says it. I'm so mad. I'm not really sure where to go next most meaningfully, except that I do know that I want to talk about another thing that I think that... Okay, I'm reading into this based on parallels I saw in Ender's Game. Mm-hmm. But in th- in thinking about Newt and the hive mind and the precursors, I could not stop thinking about Ender Wigan and the hive mind and the queen of the buggers is what they call mm-hmm. the hive mind alien race in that series. I'm so angry about Mako. Yeah. Like, okay. Mir has left the room uh, briefly. But conceptually, I feel like there's a way to fix this plot without completely throwing it in the trash. Yeah. It does involve throwing significant parts in the trash. Explain. Which parts do you think should be not trashed? I think having Newt get too close or taken over in some way, like Mir said, it's compelling and it could be done right. Yeah. But it would have to be done carefully. I don't think having Newton Herman separated for 10 years makes a lot of sense if they were researching the same things that whole 10 years. <laughs> and That's fair. Okay, Mir has returned. Okay, sorry. Um, I feel like there's ways to fix this plot. May I pose them to you? Yes, please. Okay, number one. I agree with you that... Newt being like taken over by the precursors uh, could be done in a really compelling, interesting way. I think it wouldn't have been hire a different director and a different scriptwriter, um, and and do throw this one in the trash. But like, there's concepts here. Having a young teen be a main character is compelling in this kind of premise. Because it's if, it's ten years later and she's grown up in the world right. shaped by the war and shaped by the after effects of right. the military not doing anything about the war. It'd be a thematic follow-up to Mako. Mm-hmm. Because Mako was a young child when the kaiju started attacking. Mm-hmm. You know, it changed her mm-hmm. and she had to she grew through it and became a different person. Amara, similarly, has almost certainly been changed by the the war ending and mm-hmm. nothing having improved. Yeah. If you want to go that way, have it be a critique of the military and have the affected child be a very prominent character. Mm-hmm. Maybe the protagonist. I think having her interact with Mako as their, their corollaries of each other, I think that could be very interesting. Foils. They, yes. they should have been foils. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, if you couldn't get Charlie Hunnam for the movie... Yeah, I think he was busy with something else when they were filming this. Then have him have a meaningful death that affected Mako, and that's what she's dealing with, maybe? Honestly, I would have loved to have seen that, because, like... It would have shown how people deal with it when someone they're really close to 
someone they're drifting with. Yeah, like even it, even when they lose someone. Even if he had died in like a completely random accidental way that had nothing to do with their work or their relationship or anything, I still think it would have been worth exploring the effects of that on her. His whole arc in the first movie is because he can't get over the death of his brother, who was his drift partner. Right. That would be an, a good way to parallel Yeah, that. so the fact that he entirely <laughs> vanishes and the effects of that on Mako aren't explored even even mentioned He's is like mentioned. messed up. That's... Super messed up. I don't think this fixes anything, but I have to assume in a crack way from the fact that he's not mentioned at all that they got married and he's a stay-at-home dad. And he's not mentioned because he's happy at home and not Honestly, relevant that's, to the work that they're doing. That's acceptable to me. I would accept that. <laughs> I would accept this in a fix-it-fix. I would not accept it in the sequel unless same, it is mentioned same, same, same. that he's fine. He's chilling at home with their two and a half children. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but but oh, my other my other fix to this plot, and then you just throw the whole rest away. Stacker doesn't have a kid that mm-hmm. he never mentioned. Yeah. Um, because deadbeat black dads are a problem trope. Yeah. For that's, one thing. Okay, that's fucked up, and I that's fucked up and problematic, and I think that it's at. It's not in character for Stacker. No, it's it's not in character. It's directly against the characterization of his relationship with Mako in the first movie. Mm -hmm. He adopted this child and he takes her around with him from base to base to such an extent that she becomes a genius child expert in this field. And And then he won't let her, the brightest student that he has, do this world-saving work because he's afraid she's going to get hurt. Like, he loves his daughter. But presumably, (laughs) in the second movie, he has a child already, who Mako presumably never interacted with as a child, and he brings that child into the military straight off and says, you're gonna do this life-threatening work. It's fucked up. It's bad characterization of Stacker Pentecost. He yeah. deserved better. Yeah. Yeah. No, my my other my other main fix is have Newt still get taken by the precursors. Uh, and have that plot point still there. But he and Herman still work together. I don't see a reason they would not work together. Okay, okay. And... Let, let me yeah. cut you off for a second. I think that this was a pragmatic choice because I'm not saying it's a good choice. I'm saying this was the decision to have them not work together anymore and not have interacted at all for the mm-hmm. last 10 years was motivated by the fact that... I don't think it is possible to look at Newt and Herman's relationship in the first movie and accept that Herman would not notice that Newt was being possessed for 10 years. Yes, my... I, <laughs> like... I, have, I have something on that. Okay. Change it from being possessed. It, he's, he's still yes. Newt, but he's increasingly being affected by and being drawn towards this presence. Okay, see, that's my headcanon. That's my headcanon about this. That's my headcanon about this because at no point is there any like this is definitively what's happening and he's definitely being possessed. So that's that's actually my headcanon about how this is working. God, this is like so in depth. I don't know where to start. (laughs) Fuck. Too many opinions, not enough brain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The alcohol. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. Okay, the thing though is that I think that coincidentally to him being neurodivergent, this has nothing to do with that. This is a personality thing. Newt is exactly the kind of like self-centered, thinks he's always right kind of person who could accidentally convince himself that he was doing something damaging to himself that was actually like helping him. So, Mm. like, I think when this drifting with the kaiju brain after the world had been saved started out, he was like, oh, this is helpful to me and my work in some way. And then, like, it changed him very, very gradually. Mm -hmm. But the only way I can see that happening in the first place is if he's already having a super fucked up time as it is. If he's, like, really lonely. Have you seen that interview clip with Charlie Day where someone's, like, asking him to, like, summarize what's going on? going on with his character in the movie he literally says well he doesn't have anyone he doesn't have anyone keeping him real he's away from Herman he misses the man that he's in love with Charlie Day supports my headcanon that the only reason this all happened is because Newt and Herman
Spider-Man stopped talking to each other, Newt got all too far into his own head, got super isolated, and then had this hive mind bouncing off all these bad ideas he already had about himself. Okay, so what actually happened here was after Newt and Herman drifted, they both realized, they both became aware of the fact that the other one had a crush on them, and it was not, like, unrequited. (laughs) And it freaked them both out so much that they were like, we're never going to speak of this again. That's more... Oh my god. That's not exactly what I think Literally happened. Literally big but, fucking move. But like, pretty close. Okay, here's what I think happened. Here's what I think happened. This is what I'm basing every fic that I am writing from here on out on this hypothesis because this is what I think happened. Everything that happens in the first Pacific Rim takes place over the course of two or three days. Yes. Like, Newt is doing stuff constantly that whole mm-hmm. fucking time. He builds a pawns device from garbage? The he thing that he drifts sleep. with? Yeah. Newton built a neural bridge from garbage and drifted with a kaiju? From garbage. Newton yes. Geisler was able to build this in a cave <laughs> with a box of scrap. Exactly. After, presumably, <laughs> after everyone on the base weapons. went to bed, because there's a deleted scene where he's running around with a headlamp and a mag light and a flashlight that he's holding between his teeth to go and dig up these scrap parts that he loads into a cart. So presumably he did this at night after everyone had gone to sleep. After. Oh my god. Okay, at, okay so here's the timeline of Newt Geisler's insanity in the first I'm movie. sorry, but I have to care. Here's the timeline. <laughs> Everyone gets off the helicopters and gets into the elevator, and there's Newt wheeling the new kaiju specimen that he has and is clearly excited to get back to the lab. So then he gets back to the lab and does that. And then, at the end of the day, after Herman goes to bed, he goes down to, like, steal some shit. He builds the pawns device. He does the drift during the day. And I gotta assume it's, like, early in the morning because, like, Herman finds him, like, like, seizing on the floor, and then, like, the, uh, Raleigh and Mako's first drift happens, and that goes badly, and they have to pull the plug on that, and then it's nighttime again when Newt goes out to meet Hannibal Chow, and it's still nighttime when he and Herman drift, and then the sun is coming up, and the sun has just risen as the movie ends. Newt's been awake for a really fucking long time. He's been awake for like 72 hours. Newt has never slept (laughs) once in his life. Newt is neurodivergent and he has bipolar disorder. This was a manic phase. This whole movie takes place during a Newton Geisler manic phase. You know what? That fucking tracks, honestly. Which... It do be like that. Which usually are followed by depressive episodes. Yeah. After Newt and Herman drift, Newt goes into a depressive episode because he doesn't have to be on high alert anymore because the world is saved and he can breathe for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so... And also he has nothing to keep And also he has nothing to keep going. No more adrenaline. So he goes into a depressive phase. Newt and Herman have just drifted and like a very popular trope in fan fiction that I happen to adore is like ghost drift effects where people continue to feel the emotions of their partner to a lower level afterward and like I fucking love and that. like the transfer of mm-hmm. like certain speech patterns and like thought patterns and stuff yeah, you pick shit up from someone when you've been inside their so, brain Newt goes into a depressive episode Herman also goes into Newt's depressive episode mm-hmm. but he's not bipolar and has not been dealing with this for his entire life so he doesn't know what the fuck to do about it mm-hmm. or how to help Newt and in addition to that, this is like the in the week after these people saved the fucking world, the rest of the world is going to want to know, like, what's going on. So, like, Mako and Raleigh and, like, everyone goes on, like, a press tour and there are cameras everywhere and Newt and Herman are, like, less important in the grand scheme of, oh, well, meet the people who saved the world, but they're still, like, there. And, like, mm-hmm. Newt wanted to be a rock star. Like, that was his whole thing. Suddenly he's in the limelight and he learns that he doesn't want that at all. and he can't deal with his emotions and he can't deal with Herman and so he just like runs off and Herman is still dealing with all these same problems and also not knowing how to deal with this depressive episode that he's Mm -hmm. residual ghosting from Newt so he doesn't go after him. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. That's rough, buddy. (laughs) And then then in a year, Herman tries to contact Newt but he's not answering his emails. No. And a year later, he's still not answering his calls. And a year later, he's like, hey, I'm married now. Did you know that? Because, like, Newt in this time has come to blame Herman. Yeah. That's fucking (laughs) rough, buddy. Yikes, Aronian cheese. So that's what I think happened there. (laughs) You would have done a better job of writing this movie. I know. I know. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. 
I am not surprised by this because you're a good writer. Thank you. But also... <laughs> you're personally offended on behalf of Guillermo del Toro, as am I. I am. How did someone get paid to make this movie? It looked all right. The visual people did an okay job. Okay, I even have a nitpick with that, which is that the first movie is extremely colorful and, like, pop arty and reminds me a little bit of, like, yes. comics. The second, movie does, the second movie doesn't. It doesn't have any of that same visual flavor. It's yeah. like your standard I, action movie. Oh, that's tragic. I, I do not take issue with the individual artists on that. I take issue with their artistic director, oh, yeah, who definitely. was not Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I remember last time we were like all together recording Spin, I mentioned that I thought it would be fun to do an episode where I like talk about color theory, and then I promptly realized that like there's no way to do that in an audio format. But like Pacific mm -hmm. Rim is my number one example for that, because like... The colors in that movie, they good. Teal and orange. Yeah. Listen, I orange and blue are good. Yeah. That's my opinion. <laughs> Quantum Break does it too. It's good. Yep. <laughs> okay. I want to talk about one more thing, but I'm just going to have to get started and you're going to have to trust me that I'm going to loop this back to something relevant at the end. Okay. Uh -huh. okay. <laughs> okay. Go for it. I believe so, in you. This is the thing in Ender's Game that makes Ender's Game so important to me. So in Speaker for the Dead, um, Ender has been like called across the universe by the Bug Queen. Um, and he realizes that like they have sentience. It's just, it just plays out differently than it does in humans. So humans didn't recognize it as sentience and blah 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 and then um not until a later book in the series is there like a kind of scientific in air quotes scientific explanation for how this worked but when it is given it is my favorite fucking thing in the whole world okay so this is the theory of philotic threads. I'm gonna tell you. Oh, <laughs> a little bit you've about mentioned this. this. I, this literally. You mentioned this in the episode that Kuiper talked about. Okay, yeah. this literally, like, I don't believe that this is like the way the universe works, but if it was, it would be the most satisfying thing to me spiritually. Like, if I believed in God, this is like the way it would, I would, I could come up with a way that this is God, that this mm -hmm. explains how God works. Okay, so all all matter in the universe is both matter and energy, right? Because matter is energy. Uh -huh. But in the Ender's Game universe, all matter slash energy also has like, I'm trying not to use the word dark matter because I don't know that that was necessarily the intention here, but that's what I associate it with. Do you mean for every piece of matter and energy, there is an anti-energy? There's something that is negating it? It not, to bring about not negating it. It like, it exists. The shadow version yes, of it. Yes, it exists in attachment to that, but it's not okay. on a level that can be seen or observed or physically interacted with in the physical Physical universe. It's the fucking, yes. it's the upside down. For every atom, there is a phylote. Okay. And the phylote is like the spiritual version of that atom that exists somewhere else connected to that, but not physically present. Like on another okay. dimension. Yes. So for every atom, there is a phylote. God, this is so hard to explain without sounding like I'm talking crazy nonsense. You're allowed to sound <laughs> like you're talking loud like shit. This is a podcast where we talk about our yeah, interests, okay. not where we explain real scientific <laughs> concepts. This is true. This is I true. I mean, uh, you probably will at some point, because that's just how you are. But also, still. also, I just got like the worst echological, which cut off my train of thought, which is that my, which is the phrase, my atoms have always loved your atoms, which is, is basically... I feel like it's from a young adult novel, actually. But Jesus. like <laughs> Okay. But like I want another beer. <laughs> that's actually essentially what the theory of philotic threads is. My atoms have always known your atoms. Because so, like if, if if will you let me try and summarize? Yes. So every individual atom has a phylote, a mirror of it that exists on a plane that we can't perceive. Mm-hmm. And they are connected intrinsically yes. from the Big Bang to the end of time. Yes, the energy is connected to the matter. The phyllode is connected to the matter that it comes from. Okay, mm -hmm. so between the two there is a thread. That's where philotic threads... Mm, 
No. There's a single atom and a single phylote. Mm -hmm. And then when atoms combine into more complex matter, the merging of those phylotes is called twining. And that is what philotic threads are, is the interaction of this shadow energy with itself, with other things. But the thing is that once this energy is combined, it develops properties that are not reliant on the matter itself interacting. The ramification of this is that Ender and the Queen of the Buggers never needed to have met, interacted in any physical or even, they didn't even need to be aware of each, of each other's existence in any way more than the fact that they knew somewhere out there was someone trying to kill them for their philotic threads to get all mixed up together. It's like, it's almost kind of like a fate kind of thing. Okay. Like, <clears throat> I'm interested. So, some red string of fate bullshit. <laughs> a little bit. Ender was drawn to the Queen of the Buggers across the universe because he, as a person, is especially sensitive to philotic threads, to the connections that underweave all things. Mm -hmm. okay. And he and the Queen of the Buggers are connected via that because of him being the person who did the genocide. Another ramification of this that is used in-universe, harnessed as a form of technology, is that it means that you can send, you can send units of energy to, I, I think they just call it the outside, with a capital O. They can send units of energy to the outside, and then it can be sent via philotic threads to somewhere else. They use it as a communication device and like, it's almost like when two people know that they're doing this and have this connection, they can like psychically talk to each other across great distances okay. without the limitations of like faster than light travel. And things can be like, energy can be sent to the outside and then pulled back in. And so they, they develop a faster than light communications technology based on this. But the way that it plays out in terms of character dynamics reminds me extremely much of the drift because mm -hmm. people's philotic threads and the twining thing get stronger the more past they have with each other. Like the more that they've known, the longer they've known each other, the stronger their feelings are for each other. So in a way, you know, in the last arc of Taz Balance, the, it's the bond ship that runs on love. Yeah. This yes. is the same thing. One of the ways that they, in universe, use this as science is they harness it as a fuel mm -hmm. because they're traveling on the power of right. the philotic threads, drawing them to somewhere else. If you're mm -hmm. able to transmit energy like that, mm -hmm. why wouldn't you be able to use it as a source of motion? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's... <laughs> It's hard to explain in a way that explains why it's so compelling to me. I mean, it's a compelling concept to me just because I love bullshit ideas about, like, love being the most powerful force in the universe yeah. and everything being intricately connected in ways that interweave with the fabric of space and time, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. That's kind of my whole shit. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about this looping back around to Pacific Rim finally, mm -hmm. thank God, <laughs> is, mm -hmm. um... Oh, fuck. I can't remember how this connects back to Pacific Rim. How many uh, alcohol have you had? I just had the one. I'm this just tired. This is incredible. Tired. I'm just tired and stupid, Charlie. <laughs> God, you're valid. Like, <laughs> I had one alcohol, but also usually I sleep during the day, and I did not today. Yeah, so I'm sorry. <laughs> It's okay. Anyway, I can't remember where I was going with this or why this connects back to Pacific Rim. It's just that, like, the concept of philotic threads and the concept of the drift feel like I they work the same way in my mind. Like, mm -hmm. philotic threads as a communication device that binds two people together across great distances and is basically like the red string of fate thing as a scientific energy principle feels like the drift to me. Like Yeah, like, once you drift with someone, you are, you're, you are connected to them... Through the fabric of the universe. Yeah. Because your brains have been mooshed together. Yeah. You made me realize what I meant to say about this. Okay. Which is that, no, it actually works in the other direction. The drift, to me, it's like the concept of philotic threads made manifest in the physical world. Because the relationship between Newton and Herman was there. The relationship between mm -hmm. 
Raleigh and Yancey was there. It's a unique skill that they have. It's their past, their shared past together, their ability to predict each other's behaviors and like actions and their love for each other is what allows this technology to work in the first place. Right. Like, okay. It's not the creation of connections, it's, it's recognizing it's, and yes, utilizing them. It's the utilization of connections to create something more powerful between the two of you than either one of you could have individually. That's very interesting. Okay. That's how I think the drift works and how I conceptualize it. I like this. This is, this is a good concept. I had never put like a significant amount of thought into how the drift actually like physically works. I just assumed it was like the little machine thingy that goes on your head reading your brainwaves and beaming them into the other person's head. But like, oh, I don't, IDK. I don't know how I think on a on a functional on a functional level. yeah I don't know how I think that works on a functional mechanical level but that's how I think it works like metaphorically yeah. I guess that's some good shit ten out of ten I feel like if they had like you were saying if they had followed up on any of the like child soldier stuff going on and the previous established fictional themes that we have on that could have been good. Yeah, I do feel like the only theme from Pacific Rim that, like, if they were gonna only take one of them, the most important one is the, when you bond with other people and work together, you can do cool shit. Like, that is the one that they should have followed through on, if anything. And it seems like they didn't. And I think there was the potential to do that in a lot of different places. And Newt and Herman's small amount of screen time and Newt's arc from the first to the second movie, to me, reads 100% as, like, a tragedy about what happens when those kind of connections fail to save you mm-hmm. because like oh I, oh I have so many feelings about Newt and Herman god like yeah. that's fair <laughs> it do be like that but also that there was just there was just too many different characters and they were trying to do too much I wish that they had not had John Boyega's character in there I wish that Mako had been there but had her role had been I don't even know what I wanted her role to have been I really liked your idea about what you said about Amara and Mako being like could have been foils in a way like that would have been cool as shit they should have given Mako more screen time and like eliminated some side plots literally I don't remember a single line that she has that's fucking tragic. It's fucked up. Listener, you can't see this, but my head is in my hands. I am just <laughs> clutching my skull. I'm so angry about Mako Mori's death in this movie. She deserved better. I'm so angry. You know how I have that sticker on my computer that says Beth Wilder deserved better because I have very strong opinions about Beth Wilder? I feel like I need to make one of those for Mako Mori now. Yeah. Mako Mori deserved better. I'm upset about that. I'm trying to remember how I used to format outros. Um, this has been Spin the Junk Special Interest Podcast. We're all drunk and we're about to go record a second episode. So <laughs> stay fucking tuned, buddy. <laughs> Love can save the universe, but not in this movie. <laughs> Love can save the universe also in this movie, but not in the movie. This is a fixing thing that I'm writing in. Thank you for listening to Spin, the drunk special interest podcast by neurodivergent people for neurodivergent people. You might notice that uh, this voice sounds a little different than the person who has been doing our uh, intro and outro. <laughs> that is because it is not a mice, it is Charlie. I uh, <laughs> broke the cord for our microphone, so that is why this audio sounds so shitty. I am recording it right off my laptop. Uh, so again, thanks for listening to Spin. Tune in next time for whatever the heck we decide to talk about. Who knows? We'll see.